and welcome to the April podcast. I am Dean Hess, editor of the journal. Again this month we have a full issue. So Sarah, let's get started. Our first paper is Diagnostic Utility of Plasma Procalcitonin for Nosocomial Pneumonia in the Intensive Care Unit Setting by Dallas and colleagues. This study was a prospective single-center cohort study at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. In medical and surgical patients in the ICU with suspected nosocomial pneumonia, the authors measured plasma procalcitonin. In 104 consecutive patients with suspected nosocomial pneumonia, 64% met the predefined clinical and microbiologic criteria for definite nosocomial pneumonia. Though the mean procalcitonin concentration was greater in the 67 patients with definite nosocomial pneumonia than in the 12 patients with definite absence of nosocomial pneumonia, this difference was not significant. A procalcitonin cutoff value greater than 1 nanogram per milliliter yielded a diagnostic sensitivity of 50% and a specificity of 49% for definite nosocomial pneumonia. Receiver operating curve and multivariate logistic regression analyses demonstrated that procalcitonin is inferior to clinical variables for diagnosing nosocomial pneumonia. However, compared to patients with an initial procalcitonin greater than 1 nanogram per milliliter, those with lower procalcitonin had fewer total antibiotic days and fewer antibiotic days for treatment of nosocomial pneumonia. The authors conclude that plasma procalcitonin has minimal diagnostic value for nosocomial pneumonia. Procalcitonin is a circulating biomarker that may be elevated with bacterial infection. In the study by Dallas et al., however, an elevated procalcitonin yielded a diagnostic sensitivity of only 50% and a specificity of only 49% for nosocomial pneumonia. In fact, receiver operating curve and multivariate logistic regression analyses demonstrated that procalcitonin was inferior to clinical variables for diagnosing nosocomial pneumonia. As Lloyd and Shastra point out in their editorial, there may be value in the use of procalcitonin to help reduce antibiotic use in patients with nosocomial pneumonia, but additional studies are needed in this area. Next, we have the paper by Vilar et al., a risk tertiles model for predicting mortality in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, age, plateau pressure, and PaO2-FiO2 at ARDS onset can predict mortality. These authors examined whether stratification by tertiles of respiratory and ventilatory variables at the onset of ARDS identifies patients with different risks of death in the intensive care unit. They performed a secondary analysis of data from 220 patients included in two multicenter prospective independent trials of ARDS patients mechanically ventilated with a lung protective strategy. Using demographic, pulmonary, and ventilation data collected at ARDS onset, they derived and validated a simple prediction model based on a population-based stratification of variable values into low, middle, and high tertiles. 
The derivation cohort included 170 patients and the validation cohort included 50 patients. Tertile distribution for age, plateau pressure, and PaO2-FiO2 at ARDS onset identified subgroups with different mortalities, particularly for the highest risk tertiles of age greater than 62 years, plateau pressure greater than 29 centimeters water, and PaO2 over FiO2 less than 112 millimeters of mercury. Patients with no high-risk tertiles had a mortality of 12%, whereas patients with three high-risk tertiles had 90% mortality. The authors conclude that a prediction model based on tertiles of patient age, plateau pressure, and PaO2 over FiO2 at the time the patient meets ARDS criteria identifies patients with the lowest and highest risk of intensive care unit death. Villar et al. examined whether stratification by tertiles of respiratory and ventilatory variables at the onset of ARDS identifies patients with different risk of death in the ICU. A prediction model based on tertiles of patient age, plateau pressure, and PaO2-FiO2 ratio at the time the patient meets ARDS criteria identifies patients with the lowest and highest risk of ICU death. This seems to be a simple yet highly predictive model. However, as pointed out by Cook in his editorial, there are several reasons why this model should not yet be the basis for patient care decisions. Pilot study of a new device to titrate oxygen flow in hypoxic patients on long-term oxygen therapy is by Sirio and Nava. They evaluated a new automated oxygen regulator that titrates the oxygen flow based on a pulse oximetry signal to maintain a target SpO2. They enrolled 18 subjects with chronic lung disease, exercise-induced desaturation, and on long-term oxygen therapy in a randomized crossover study with two constant workload, 15-minute cycling exercise tests, starting with the patient's previously prescribed usual oxygen flow. In one test, the oxygen flow is titrated manually by the respiratory therapist, and in the other test, the oxygen flow was titrated by the O2 flow regulator to maintain an SpO2 of 94%. SpO2 was measured throughout each test, the time spent by the respiratory therapist to set the device or to manually regulate the oxygen flow, and the total number of respiratory therapist titration interventions during the trial. There were no differences in symptoms or heart rate between the exercise tests. Compared to the respiratory therapist-controlled tests, during the O2 flow regulator tests, SpO2 was significantly higher, significantly less time was spent below the target SpO2, and the O2 flow regulator tests required significantly less respiratory therapist time. The authors conclude that the O2 flow regulator may be a safe and effective alternative to manual oxygen titration during exercise in hypoxic patients. This automated oxygen regulator titrates oxygen flow based on pulse oximetry to maintain a target oxygen saturation. 
Indeed, the authors found that it provided a stable oxygen saturation and avoided desaturations. As suggested in the editorial by Dunn and McCoy, this study is noteworthy in that it identifies the need to adjust the oxygen flow in the face of changing demand, in contrast to the traditional approach of setting a fixed dose. It will be interesting to see if similar devices become available in North America. We continue with the paper, Symmetrical Waveform High Frequency Oscillation Increases Artificial Mucus Flow Without Changing Basal Mucus Transport in In Vitro Ovine Trachea by Tatkov and Pack. These authors conducted in vitro experiments with ovine trachea to investigate the effects of symmetrical waveform HFO on tracheal transport of artificial mucus. They mounted each trachea as an intact tube with a 15 degree head down tilt, infused artificial mucus at the caudal end of the trachea, and measured mucus transport velocity as the time between the beginning of infusion and the first appearance of artificial mucus over two near-infrared sensors at the rostral end of the trachea and by measuring the amount of mucus emerging. In a second series of experiments, they opened each trachea flat and, with video microscopy, the authors measured the transport velocity of plaques over the endogenous mucus sheet. In the intact trachea preparation, HFO at 20 Hz and 50 cm water increased mucus transport velocity from 5.8 mm per minute to 7.8 mm per minute. HFO led to nearly half the artificial mucus being cleared during the infusion period. In the opened trachea experiments, the mean control transport velocity was 8.7 millimeters per minute, and HFO at 14 hertz or 20 hertz did not significantly alter that velocity. The authors conclude that symmetrical waveform HFO increases mucus transport velocity and mucus clearance when a thick layer of mucus is present. In this in vitro study, symmetrical waveform HFO increased mucus transport velocity and mucus clearance when a thick layer of mucus was present. This may be important when considering the mechanisms of airway clearance while using HFO. However, the clinical relevance is yet to be determined. Transcutaneous measurement of carbon dioxide tension during extended monitoring, evaluation of accuracy and stability, and an algorithm for correcting calibration drift is by Berlowitz and colleagues. They examined the stability and accuracy of transcutaneous PCO2 measurements and the performance of a previously described linear interpolation technique designed to correct for calibration drift. Transcutaneous PCO2 values from two monitors were compared to arterial PCO2 values obtained at the beginning every 15 minutes of the first hour and then hourly over eight hours of monitoring in six hemodynamically stable male intensive care patients. Time had significant linear effect on the difference between transcutaneous and arterial PCO2, suggesting calibration drift over the monitoring period. The authors found no difference between monitor type or interaction between time and monitor type. 
their linear interpolation algorithm improved the bias and limits of agreement. They conclude that, following stabilization and correction for both offset and drift, transcutaneous PCO2 tracks PACO2 with minimal residual bias over 8 hours of monitoring. Continuous monitoring of arterial PCO2 is desirable when polysomnography is performed and nocturnal hypoventilation is suspected. Berlowitz et al. examined the stability and accuracy of transcutaneous PCO2 measurements and the performance of a previously described linear interpolation technique designed to correct for calibration drift. They found that following stabilization and correction for both offset and drift, transcutaneous PCO2 tracked arterial PCO2 with minimal residual bias over 8 hours of monitoring. Next, we have the paper by Wang et al. Predicted Postoperative Product and Diffusion Heterogeneity Index in the Evaluation of Candidates for Lung Resection. The primary objective of this retrospective study was to evaluate whether abnormal predicted postoperative variables and predictive postoperative product are useful in predicting postoperative complications. The secondary objective was to assess whether an abnormal diffusion heterogeneity index is associated with increased postoperative complications. In this retrospective study, the authors evaluated the medical records of 57 patients who underwent lung resection for lung cancer. Calculations of the predictive postoperative variables were done using preoperative testing data, including the extent of the resected lung segments. Predicted postoperative product was obtained by multiplying the predicted postoperative percent of predicted FEV1 by the predicted postoperative percent of predicted DLCO. The measured product was obtained by multiplying FEV1 by DLCO. The authors derived diffusion heterogeneity index from measurements of single breath DLCO with the three equation method as a measure of the heterogeneity of the distribution of gas exchange in the lung. The patients with complications had lower predictive postoperative FEV1, lower predicted postoperative DLCO, lower predicted postoperative maximal oxygen uptake, lower predicted postoperative increase in percent of predicted DLCO at 70% workload from at rest percent of predicted DLCO lower predicted post-operative product, and lower measured product. Interestingly, diffusion heterogeneity indexed increased with exercise in all patients with complications, but decreased with exercise in all patients without complications. The authors conclude that predicted post-operative variables, predicted post-operative product, measured product, and diffusion heterogeneity index are potentially useful predictors of complications in candidates for lung resection. Lung function testing, including measurements of FEV1 and DLCO, are used in the assessment of patients before lung resection surgery. These authors report the potential for use of several indices to predict complications in candidates for lung resection. Although attractive, additional studies are needed to confirm these results prospectively and in other centers. A 
Effects of mean arterial pressure and needle size on arterial sampler filling time is by Johnson and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the effects of mean systemic blood pressure and needle size on vented arterial sampler filling times to distinguish venous and arterial sampling. The authors constructed an extracorporeal laboratory model to circulate whole blood at 4 liters per minute. Hemostats were used to create six pressures, 57 millimeters mercury, representing a patient in shock, 70 millimeters mercury, representing a patient with low normal blood pressure, 93 millimeters mercury, representing normal, 107 millimeters mercury, representing high normal, 133 millimeters mercury, representing severe hypertension, and 14 millimeters mercury, representing peripheral venous pressure. They simulated percutaneous punctures with vented arterial samplers preset to 2 milliliters with two common sampling needles. The filling times of each pressure needle combination were compared and the correlation between the mean pressure and filling time was determined. The correlation coefficient between the mean blood pressures and the sampler filling times was negative 0.86. The authors conclude that lower blood pressure increased the sampler filling time and suggest that this might enable therapists to confirm successful arterial puncture in adult patients. Johnson et al. report that a lower mean blood pressure increased the arterial sampler filling time. These findings are somewhat predictable, but suggest that measuring the filling time may allow clinicians to confirm successful arterial puncture in adult patients. Given the limitations of an in vitro study, these results should be confirmed clinically. Classifying different types of double triggering based on airway pressure and flow deflection in mechanically ventilated patients is by Liao et colleagues. The objective of this study was to differentiate double triggering that is patient-triggered, auto-triggered, and ventilator-triggered using airway pressure or flow changes during the trigger delay phase. Fourteen mechanically ventilated patients with double triggering were included. All patients were on flow-triggered ventilation modes and received either continuous mandatory ventilation or pressure support ventilation. Breaths in which the first breath was associated with an esophageal pressure drop of greater than one centimeter water were categorized as patient-triggered. Breaths in which the first breath occurred at the ventilator set cycle were categorized as ventilator-triggered. Breaths in which the first breath occurred earlier than the ventilator set cycle without esophageal pressure drop were categorized as auto-triggered. There were 507 double-triggered breaths, 53% were ventilator-triggered, 37% were patient-triggered, and 10% were auto-triggered. The authors conclude that double-triggering that is patient-triggered can be distinguished from other forms by using airway pressure deflections in the trigger delay phase. Double triggering is a frequent type of patient ventilator asynchrony. This type of asynchrony is of concern because it can result in breast stacking, which could lead to over-distension lung injury. The first breath of a double trigger can be patient-triggered, auto-triggered, or ventilator-triggered. These authors found that double triggered due to patient effort can be distinguished from the other forms 
by assessing airway pressure deflections in the trigger delay phase. Our next paper is Electrocardiographic Guidance for the Placement of Gastric Feeding Tubes, a Pediatric Case Series by Green and colleagues. Neurally Adjusted Ventilatory Assist, or NAVA, is available on the Servo I ventilator, requires a proprietary design catheter with embedded electrodes that detect the electrical activity of the diaphragm. This catheter has the potential benefit of confirming proper positioning of a gastric catheter based on the diaphragm electrical activity waveforms. In a case series study, this was evaluated for immediate, real-time confirmation of proper nasal or oral gastric tube placement in 20 mechanically ventilated pediatric patients who underwent 23 oral or nasal gastric tube placements. The catheters were placed using standard practice with the addition of monitoring the diaphragm electrical activity waveforms. As the tube passes down the esophagus and posterior to the heart, a characteristic electrical pattern is identified, and the position of the arterial signal confirms correct placement of the gastric tube. If the diaphragm electrical waveforms indicate incorrect placement, the tube is repositioned until the proper waveform pattern is attained. Then, proper tube placement is reconfirmed via auscultation over the stomach while air is injected into the catheter, checking the pH of fluid suctioned from the catheter and or radiograph. All patients had successful gastric catheter placement. The catheter measuring diaphragm electrical activity provided characteristic patterns for correctly placed tubes tubes malpositioned above or below the gastroesophageal junction, and curled tubes. The authors conclude that guidance using diaphragm electrical activity helps confirm proper gastric catheter position, is equivalent to the standard practice for confirming gastric catheter placement, and may reduce the need for radiographs and improve patient safety by avoiding catheter malpositions. Green et al. describe a novel application of the catheter used for NAVA ventilation, that is, to confirm proper positioning of a gastric catheter. They found that this approach helps confirm proper gastric catheter position, is equivalent to the standard practice for confirming gastric catheter placement, may reduce the need for radiographs, and may improve patient safety by avoiding catheter malpositions. This approach, although attractive, is limited because it requires a specific model of ventilator. Our final original research paper for April is Assessment of Accuracy of the VacuMed 17053 Calibrator for Ventilation, Oxygen Uptake, and Carbon Dioxide Production by Bunn and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate the VacuMed motorized syringe calibrator for accuracy against the accepted Douglas Bag Standard method. The authors tested oxygen consumption values of 500 to 3,200 milliliters per minute. They mixed room air and calibration gases in the pumping syringes of the VacuMed and evacuated those gases into a Douglas bag, measured the Douglas bag volumes and concentrations, and converted to pulmonary ventilation, oxygen consumption, and carbon dioxide production. 
The VacuMed calibrator overestimated oxygen consumption by a mean 1.3% error, underestimated carbon dioxide production by a mean negative 1.7% error, and underestimated pulmonary ventilation by a mean negative 1.4% error. The authors concluded that oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production differences might be attributable to fluctuations of the calibrator settings. The vacuum med calibrator was accurate with the application of a mathematical correction. Few studies have examined the accuracy of mechanical calibrators for use with metabolic monitors. Bunn et al. report that the vacuum med calibrator was accurate with the application of a mathematical correction. These results will be useful to those performing metabolic CART studies. We published two reviews this month, a meta-analysis of the use of teotropium for treatment of stable COPD and a Respiratory Care 2010 Year in Review on the topics of asthma, COPD, pulmonary function testing, and ventilator-associated pneumonia. We also publish an AARC clinical practice guideline on capnography during mechanical ventilation. We publish two case reports related to setting PEEP, one using esophageal manometry and the other using pressure volume curves, and another case report describing experience with a new device for clearing mucus from the endotracheal tube. The teaching cases relate to hematological abnormalities associated with lung carcinoma and cardiac arrest following foreign body aspiration. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.